I just thought to myself, I got pieces of paper. Jason Moore has, he's the most connected person in the world, so he knows how to do all this other stuff. And it caused me to remember a story I read years ago about a new young preacher in the community who was visited by the elder pastor in the area on Saturday. And he met the young preacher and asked him, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing my sermon for tomorrow. And the old preacher said, oh, son, man, whatever you do, don't be doing that. I used to do that. I used to write all my messages. And I found out that the, Lord, that the devil, he's looking over my shoulder, seeing everything I write. And he knew how to fight me on Sunday morning. So now I know when I get in the pulpit, me or the devil, neither one knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, I sort of I sort of do know what I'm going to say indeed. Stand with me just for a short reading of Scripture. <clears throat> Some of which you've heard already from Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as ye yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Father, we ask you to do for us what we cannot do. Accomplish your purpose in spite of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I remember remarking years ago in our home church that on an Easter, this is our high holy day. And a lady in our, in our church family who I admire said later, said, hand me down. Christians don't have any high holy days. They're all holy days. Well, you know what I mean. Easter's special, isn't it? It is the Lord's Day. It's a day that each week we celebrate the resurrection, but especially this time of year. We've witnessed some rituals this morning. Now, some folks don't like ritual at all, but we've been given rituals today, fundamental to the claims that we make about our faith. We heard a declaration that Jesus rode from the rose from the dead right out there on the grass this morning. I mean, he didn't raise on the grass, but Jason was standing on the grass and, and identified some of the early witnesses to the resurrected Jesus, not to his resurrection, but to the man Jesus who... feeding the poor or, you know, there's many social organizations we could be involved in, but we claim to worship a risen Savior. Warfield goes on. The incarnation of the eternal God is necessarily a dogma, that is, it's something that's taught. No human eye could witness his stooping demands estate. No human tongue could bear witness to it as fact. As Jason pointed out this morning at sunrise, 
Nobody saw the resurrection. Nobody saw the incarnation. None of us saw Jesus become human. No human tongue could bear witness to it as a fact. And yet, if it's not a fact, our faith is vain and we're still in our sins. On the other hand, the resurrection of Christ is a fact. An external occurrence within the cognizance of men to be established by their testimony. In other words, there's men saw it and testified to it. And it's like any other history that we have. It is dependable based on the evidence presented. It's a doctrine cardinal to our system. On it, all other doctrines hang. I don't need to take 30 or 40 minutes to convince you that Jesus actually rose from the dead because we all believe it. You know, it's interesting to me that it's very important that it is very important that we believe it, but it's most important that we can believe it because it's true and there's evidences for it. You probably have noticed already that history is interesting to me and important to me, and I want to try to make it more important perhaps to you, not by any stretch of mine expert in such a thing, but a big fan of historical things. I love ritual and tradition. But being a real sinner, I need a real savior. Not just a ritual or a tradition about some dogma, but I need a real Jesus. Do you? Do you have a real Jesus? I remember that college professor that I had at Marshall who made fun of the songs. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. He sang, it's good enough for Paul and Silas, and it's good enough for me. And I thought, yeah, I kind of like that myself. Then he added, of course, we know better than that. We know now that man's religion must keep growing and expanding to meet his needs. And I thought, and I've probably shared it many times, but man, can you imagine the stupidity of placing your eternal destiny, your hope in, in eternity, on some religion that you're making up as you go along? It's growing and expanding to meet your needs? Now, nah, people, I need a real Jesus. I love my grandparents, godly grandparents that I had, godly parents as well, especially my grandmothers. I think about them and appreciate all they taught me, but it wouldn't do me much good if it's not true, just because they were good to teach it and they were nice old ladies. I need a real Jesus, don't you? You are actually, you and me, sons and daughters of Adam. You need a ritual. God gives us ritual. But we need a ritual that's based on reality. Much, much more, you need a real Savior. A real man, Jesus. Acts 2.22 is not to be plucked out of its context. So I can just make some claim that I want to make this morning or claim something that not in the scripture. But the time and place of these statements was Pentecost. After the resurrection, as Peter preached, and some thought people were drunken, Peter there referenced his hearers as eyewitness account. Those who actually saw. Listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders 
and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Think about this as far as a validity of the eyewitness. Now, I have friends, one of our deacons at the former church is the assistant police chief in Lewisburg, and talking to him one day, he said, you know, there's not many things less reliable than eyewitness because eyewitnesses see things so much differently, different points of view. But in a preponderance of evidence of eyewitnesses, there begins to be a, a clear indication of what's true. Here, Peter preaching at Pentecost said, Jesus, mighty man, who did many wonders, signs, miracles, has you know, you saw them too. Some of those who listened to Peter that day included men directly involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. It was my sins that held him there. But when we sing that hymn, that's one I can identify with. I hear my mocking voice. Do you feel that way about the Lord's sacrifice for you? Some of those that were eyewitnesses that day had been to Lazarus' tomb and seen that. Matter of fact, it caused some of them to want to kill him even more and probably knock off Lazarus too to shut this thing down. I imagine some had seen him turn water into wine or heal the blind. Many wonders, but certainly seen his crucifixion. Point is this, none of these things was done in a monastery. None of them were done in a cave somewhere. None of them were revealed to Joseph Smith on copper tablets. But they were all done in broad daylight with many witnesses. One of the best attested facts in history is the historicity of Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus. Everything the Messiah did was done in broad daylight, witnessed by many. There's a wonderful example if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, the words of the Apostle Paul in what I call the resurrection chapter, which I may refer to, listen to these words. <clears throat> Paul writing, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul, a great persecutor of Christians, on that road to Damascus to persecute further? how the Lord got a hold of him and how his life changed and what he suffered for the cause of Christ. I don't think we could deny the accuracy, the credibility of his testimony. Perhaps Paul only had a dream that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Some people have concluded that Paul just followed some bogus report of the gospel writers. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins made this claim, and I read it from his book, The God Delusion. Nobody knows who the four evangelists were. I thought, yeah, does anybody know who the four evangelists were? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Ringo, no. Yeah. But listen to this. No one knows who the four evangelists were, but they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. 
Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction. Well, you had part of it right. They probably didn't meet the Apostle Paul. May not have. But by reputation, they would both be aware of the other. Peter, in 2 Peter, writes these words. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now I ask you, who are we going to believe? I need a real historical Jesus. And if you knew me better, you'd say amen right there. But you do too. Peter or Dawkins? Dawkins says they, you know, the, the gospel writer says it's just ancient myths. No history. Peter says we didn't follow cleverly devised myths or fables as I've learned it, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now there's Peter who walked on the water for a while. Then there's Dawkins who believes that everything came from nothing and nobody did it. Who are you going to believe? I like the eyewitness testimony of Peter much, much better. Eyewitness accounts can be unreliable, but 500 at once, most of which were still living contemporary with Paul who made the claim. I mean, when he said this, you could go ask some of them. Some of them had died, but still, most of them were still around. Pretty bold statement for someone who didn't really have an eyewitness account of the risen Savior. I will accept Peter's historical record, not Dawkins' cleverly devised myths. How about you? Three emphases I want to make this morning, and I'm going to get to making them from these few verses in Acts chapter 2. Three things that Peter made very clear on that day. Statements about the cross and about the resurrection. Three things. Here's you some action points, if you will. He said, you all witnessed this. You participated in this. And God triumphs through it. <laughs> he did many things, as you yourselves know. And God determined to bring him to the cross, but you accomplished it with wicked men, lawless men. And yet, God brought it to victory. You witnessed it, he said. I imagine. And I have a difficulty imagining the cross. I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Many people recommended it to me. I never saw it. But I understood it was a, a, a frightening exhibition of what physical suffering the Lord may have endured. Uh, but I can say this from the scripture. Isaiah says, many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So I've got no problem with the movie. I'm just saying I've got a far better testimony than that. I've got Isaiah, the man who saw the Lord high and lifted up. In Isaiah 6, we all know. I imagined that awful scene upon Calvary. The blood, the humiliation. You see, even, even Renaissance writer, artist, 
who would depict Christ on the cross would cover his nakedness. I don't imagine the Romans cared to do that, do you? The Lord Christ who spoke the world into existence, the one by whom all things hold together, lay naked and bleeding before hundreds, perhaps thousands, I don't know, bearing your shame and mine. And it was so predicted by Isaiah as I, I read. So Peter said, you saw this. It was predicted and you saw it. And not only that, you participated in it, you lawless men. See the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I imagine the cross and I imagine that I not only see it by mind's eye, but I participated in it as well. Isaiah says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Lord Christ, creator, son of God, in the form of man, dying on the cross, humiliated before all, and going there, opened not his mouth. But not only did the perpetrators that day witness and participate, but they're going to see him again, too. Let me read it to you from Revelation. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Revelation 1, 7. Not only will those men who Peter spoke to as being eyewitnesses see him because they're the ones who pierced him, but every eye, I reckon that means you and me, whose sins were on his shoulders, I guess this is really the point for Easter Sunday, to see Jesus. Perhaps the most well-known chapter in the New Testament would be John chapter 3. And the most well-known verse would be verse 16. We all remember the account of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus at night. And Nicodemus asked him, how can a man be born again? How can he be born when he's old? You know the story. And he asked lots of questions, and Jesus answered him somewhat. He must be born again. Uh, just like the, the wind blows where it wants to blow, and you, don't, you, see the, you hear it, and you, see the, you hear the sound of it, you don't know where it's going, where it's coming from. That's the way the Spirit operates. Aren't you glad we have a Holy Spirit, part of the triune God, that's too much for me to understand completely? Now, I'm probably the smartest one here, except for my wife. Uh, but there's so much we don't understand about the Lord, isn't there? And that's essentially what Jesus told Nicodemus. But he said, I'll give you an example. You remember how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? The, bro the bronze snake? And anybody that was bitten, if they looked, they lived. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. And everyone who sees the Son, what we need to do is see Jesus, isn't it? 
But not some cardboard Jesus. Not a me and Jesus got our own thing going. We got it all worked out. But the Jesus of history. The Jesus of the Bible. The good news is that which we celebrate today. Among hearers that Peter had that day were those who saw the crucifixion. Those who participated in the crucifixion. But it was God the Father who planned and performed the propitiation not only in the death of Christ, but especially in the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, no plan B, no surprise. God ain't scared and he's not, he's not worried. He's not confused. He had a definite plan and the cross was part of that plan. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed, by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Have you heard of the argument about uh, Jesus' perfection? Could Jesus have sinned when he was tempted in the wilderness? Man, aren't we glad he held on and didn't sin? No, the spotless Lamb of God could not sin. He's God in the flesh. The pangs of death could not hold him. So some saw it. Many participated in it. But God was in the planning. And God is the one that accomplished the purpose of Calvary and the resurrection. For generations, Christian churches have used a special greeting to memorialize the resurrection day. And some of you know that. The greeter would say, He's risen. And the response would be, He's risen indeed. I think it's good that we're not the first ones to do things. That you know, some people that came before us actually knew something, had some ideas, had some experiences, and we're not the only ones that ever did anything right. He's risen. He's risen indeed. There'll be a test on this later, by the way. Things to rejoice about on Resurrection Sunday. Because of Christ's resurrection, we are living in an already, yet not yet time. Where Christ's victory over death is being worked out in us and through us. Now, man, I, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I used to be, thank the Lord. And praise Him even more, I'm not what I'm going to be someday. Should there not be a maturing process evident in the life of a growing Christian? And if there's not, shouldn't there be some investigation, a self-examination of, man, I'm in Christ. Because of the resurrection, we are growing in Christ. Our lives change. They're not the same. We're being conformed to the image of His Son, the Bible says. Therefore, there's no such thing as a Christian characterized by living in a sinful lifestyle. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. To see someone for years live as if there is no Christ, and yet because they held their hand up in Bible school in 1947, they imagine they're a Christian, I don't believe it. Because we have a resurrected life, things change. There's no such thing as a faithful, growing Christian without a church family. 
I've shared with you before how that my custom used to be when I meet someone, ask them, where do you go to church? I thought, where do you go to the bathroom? Well, you go to the bathroom at your house, right? So one of them asked, where do you live? What church are you part of? And so many, too many in our society say, well, I usually go down here to the Baptist. I said, what's the name of that? Well, it's up, you know. And I'm thinking, how can you be a Christian and not be part of a church? I mean, just ought not to be. I'm no one's judge, but I can tell you what, we have one. We have a resurrected Christ, a resurrected Christ that changes us and puts us into families. So that when we have a church, here's some benefits of that. When we have a church and we have Christ, when we fail. I love this morning what Jason said. I may not get it all in order, but some were fearful, some were depressed, and some were defiant. And There was another one, I don't remember. Say again? They, yeah, some just were caring about their business, just like it was in Noah's day, just living, giving in marriage and so forth. When we fail, notice when we fail, not if we fail, but when we fail, we have a way home now. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, we say the same thing that God says about our sin. He's faithful and just. Think about that. Two words, faithful, means he'll do it every time. And he's just, why? Because Christ paid for that sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. We don't just stay there. Jesus says, go and sin no more. We forget the sin no more part sometimes. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we have our righteousness of Christ in the sense that we've been declared righteous, but he also cleanses us from unrighteousness, and it's called a progressive sanctification. We grow in grace and knowledge. And if we're not, we need to examine ourselves whether we're in the faith. So when we fail, we have a way home. When we doubt, not if, but when we doubt, we have a promise of a resurrection. <laughs> I always think of that fellow named Peter who had this issue with the rooster, remember? I showed you one Wednesday night how the chapter 13 and 14 of John you know, just arbitrarily broken there. He says, Peter, before the, crop, the cock crows, the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I wouldn't have told you that if it wasn't true. When we doubt, we have a Jesus that says, let your heart not be troubled. We have hymns, history. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. That's, that particular hymn meant a lot to me when my, you know, when I, nobody, everybody hates me, nobody loves me, I'm going to go out in the garden and eat worms. And then I think, oh, love. That will not let me go. I think I'm his. He ain't turning me loose. So when we are lonely, when we are lonely, 
We have the benefit of brothers and sisters, the means of grace, the Lord's table that we celebrate each week to grow by. And maybe particularly important, when we visit the cemetery, we all go there. We talked about it Wednesday. We all have an appointment with the cemetery. We may not have an appointment with the mortician, but we got one with the cemetery of some kind. When we go to the cemetery, we have Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Remember, Jesus is ascending. And the angel or the man in white clothing says, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This Jesus, and I love the authorized version much better here because it says this same Jesus, which is the point. Not some imagine, not just Messiah or Son of God or Lord, but the man Jesus that you've seen go into heaven will come the same way as you've seen him go from heaven. I like that, don't you? That's the kind of Savior I need. I don't need one that just makes me a little better, a better boy, you know, a little better citizen. I need one that saved my, from my sin that is glorified with the Father and is coming back, and he's going to be the same one that he was when he was here. And I, because I believe, John, we don't appear, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, my memory is almost all King James. Beloved, we, we don't know what we're going to be like. We know when we see him, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him in his essence. We'll see him as he is. That's good right there, people. Say amen right there. Think about it. On Resurrection Sunday, we have something that comes to help us when we fail, when we doubt, when we're lonely, and when our loved ones die. And maybe more to the point, when we shed this earthly coil and we die. And we have the resurrection chapter. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's a good word. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He is risen. I told you they'd be a test. Think about that. He's risen. I'm going to try it one more time. He is risen. All right. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that victory over death. Acts 2.24 says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And then 
The resurrection chapter, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Christ demonstrated his victory over death. Our enemy. Still our enemy. A defeated enemy, but an enemy nevertheless. It also vindicated his righteousness. John 16.10 says, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. I'm going to the Father, proving his righteousness. The resurrection verified his divine identity. You've heard this many months ago in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Declared to be the Son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he's declared to be divine because of his resurrection. Declared his divinity. Quoting Warfield once again. The doctrines of Christianity are doctrines only because they're facts. And the facts of Christianity become its most indispensable doctrine. The resurrection of Christ is an historical truth. Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection as a space-time occurrence in history. If there wasn't really 2,000 plus years ago a real God-man named Jesus who died a real death in a real place in geography, in time and space, then our preaching is vain. Faith is vain, our hope is vain, we're still in our sins. But as we read the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we find out that it's not in vain because he does live. Therefore, our labor is not in vain. To believe in Jesus as a historical figure takes no more faith than to believe when your history teacher taught you that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Think about that, the simplicity of that. I was, I don't know, how many have seen, Bob, have you seen George Washington? You're about the only one here old enough. No. <laughs> I haven't even seen very many pictures of him, probably, either. But he was real, wasn't he? I mean, we believe it. We were taught it. In the same way, the historical Jesus is real in history, and it doesn't take a lot of faith to believe that. But if you stake your eternal destiny on what he's done at Calvary and <laughs> Gethsemane, at the tomb, in the resurrection, in the ascension, in the return, to call on the Lord, believing He died in your place. Believing that He rose from the dead, that He ascended to the Father and will return for you. This is the immeasurable gift that is given to us that we celebrate today. So much as I like to emphasize the historicity of the facts about Jesus, and without them we have no faith, but it's not in them. It's not believing, it's not understanding completely history, even theologically. Our trust is not in our knowledge of things, but our trust is in the Savior Himself, not in our faith in Him. But in Him, our pastor for so many years used to say, boys, you don't want to have faith in your faith. It's a danger. I, I, man, I, I'm, I've 
have about as much faith in my faith as I have in my doubt. And I got a lot of faith in the real man Jesus, don't you? He's never lost a case. He won't lose me. It's an unusual day, and I have departed from our usual custom and application and benediction. Not going to be typical. But I ask you to stand with me. And as a way of closing and, and applying the words of Scripture and a benediction I offer you, I'd rather have the Apostle Paul offer it. Saying the resurrection is the base of life in Christ for the believer here and now. Right, more Here and now. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Good afternoon. He is risen.